Thanks for downloading this podcast from Burghead Free Church in Murray, Scotland. We exist to know Jesus and make Jesus known. Our vision is to grow to be a vibrant all-age church of 100 disciples. Find out more at burgheadfreechurch.org. The reading is 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 1 to 9. When Solomon had finished building the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had achieved all he had desired to do, the Lord appeared to him a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. The Lord said to him, I have heard the prayer and plea you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. But if you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, Then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble. All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? People will answer, Because they have forsaken the Lord their God, who brought their ancestors out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshipping and serving them. That is why the Lord brought all this disaster on them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I was not yet a Christian, and the minister's wife was pinning me with her piercing eyes and perceptive mind. Paul, she said, you've got the ticket. Now you have to decide if you'll get on the train. Well, simple though it sounds, that was the first time I realized there was actually a choice to be made. Somehow I'd imagined that if I'd just held on to my ticket, you know, carried on going to church, kept mixing with other Christians, God would somehow sweep me up and place me on the train. But I suddenly realized, no, it's a choice. It's my choice. Well, life is full of choices, many of them small. One university study in 2007 estimated the average adult makes 35,000 decisions every day. There's the alarm clock going off. 
Shall I roll out of bed or shall I turn over and uh, snuggle in for another five minutes? Um, well, it's raining today. Shall I go for a walk or uh, shall I just uh, shut the doors and stay in the warm? And do you ever say, well, I can't decide? Well, you've made a decision right there, haven't you? I can't decide whether to get out of bed or not. Well, that really means you've decided to stay there. You've made your choice. Now, some choices might turn out to be very significant indeed. On February the 1st, 1975, I was crossing a pelican crossing in Sheffield, walking in the other direction, coming over the road towards me, was a beautiful young woman that I chose to ask out right there and then, while the green man was flashing. Somewhat unconvincingly, she said yes, and apparently even washed her hair for the occasion. And 45 years, three children, six grandchildren, and six homes later, Sue and I are still together. Well, I thought that was a good anecdote to tell for today, which is, of course, St. Valentine's Day. We don't always realize until much later just how impactful our choices might be. Now, that was certainly true for Solomon. Here in 1 Kings chapter 9, he has to make a choice, the second big choice that God has given him. And it will be the difference between lasting fruitfulness in his kingdom or ruin so great it will become legendary. Our passage is broken up into two sections. Um, we had the first section, verses 1 to 9, read to us, Solomon's second choice. And verses 10 to 28, Solomon's success and splendor. So we'll start with Solomon's second big choice. If you've been with us this past few weeks, you'll remember his first. It was at a place called Gibeon. Solomon was in the midst of worship and God showed up and offered a choice. He said, Solomon, ask anything you want and I will give it to you. Well, Solomon chose well on that day. He asked God for the wisdom to rule his people justly and to govern as king, distinguishing right from wrong. And God was so pleased with his answer, he gave Solomon what he asked for and so much more. He promised to make him the wisest king that ever lived and in addition to that, for his glory and fame and wealth to grow and grow and grow. Solomon uses his God-given wisdom to bring justice to the kingdom, to usher in an era of peace, and then to begin building. He built a palace for himself. He built a palace for his wife. And then he built the very temple of God. So now we pick up at the beginning of chapter 9 with that temple completed and Solomon and God having a second meeting. We're told in verse 1, 
As soon as he had finished building the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had achieved all he had desired to do. That's the setting. Solomon's all done. He's finished. Now at that point, we're told, verse 2, the Lord appeared to him a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. Now, what are we meant to see here? The writer has bookended this period of building with these two meetings with God. Well, it's hard to avoid wondering if God is nudging Solomon into a consideration of where his ambition is leading. We know from previous weeks, Solomon has made some smaller choices against God's wishes. Marrying someone from outside God's chosen people, making sacrifices that God has asked him not to make. But his heart has remained with God. Like everyone who ever lived, bar one, Solomon is not perfect, and the Lord knows that. Well, whatever God's intention here, this second meeting starts off well. In verse 3, God tells Solomon that he has accepted the temple that Solomon has built for him. Thirteen years previously, in chapter 8, verse 26, Solomon asked God, May your eyes be open towards this temple day and night. And yet again, God gives him more than he asks for. Take a look at the end of verse 3. My eyes and my heart will always be there. God gives his heart, and he wants Solomon's heart in return. He promises to consecrate the temple and that he's putting his name to live there forever. But then he gives him the choice, a choice that Solomon must make that will decide the fate of his kingdom and the fate of the dynasty of David. And the choice is between faithfulness and seeking after his own fortune, seeking other idols. In verses 4 and 5, you see the positive side of this choice. It's an if-then statement. So read verse 4 with me. If you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, then, this is what will happen, verse 5, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. Solomon, if you're faithful, if your heart is for me, like your father David's was, your dynasty will endure whatever the world can throw at it forever. Well, that's all the positive side. As a loving father, God wants to bless Solomon, but... As a loving father, he's not slow to offer a warning. So there's another side, another choice. Verse 6. But if you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, 
then, verse 7, will then be warned, things will not go well for you or the people. I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble. What does this seem unkind? After all, God knew Solomon was not perfect. He knew he would falter just as his father David did. But it was no deception. God wasn't asking for perfection. He's demanding the allegiance of Solomon's heart as he has since the beginning. Go back to chapter 3, verse 14. God told him, if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Now we know David wavered. He sinned in maybe the worst of ways. But he always came back to God his father in repentance, turning away from sin because his heart lay with God. So Solomon has always understood what his relationship with God demanded. Now, Solomon has before him the choice of faithfulness and enduring fruitfulness for the kingdom or the choice of faithlessness and ultimate failure. The stakes here really couldn't be higher. So what will he choose? What will the fate of the kingdom be and what will happen to God's people? There's a sense of foreboding in the air. Well, if this was a movie, the director might throw in some rumbling thunder while Solomon gazes out over his kingdom. Well, in the end, we know he turned to other idols. In the end, Israel and the glory of King Solomon would fade into oblivion. This is the sort of cautionary tale that parents might use to scare their children into obedience. Remember what happened when Solomon made the wrong choice? But for the moment, the storm is held at bay. And that story is for future weeks. From verse 10 to 28, the story turns to Solomon's prosperity and eminence, his success and splendor. We read a long list of outstanding leadership qualities and accomplishments. Years of success, a splendid time for God's king. We've already seen that Solomon's clearly a diplomat, a canny politician. His trade alliance with Hiram, the king of Tyre, brings fabulous wealth to both men. He also continues to be brilliant in building projects, expanding Jerusalem, but not just Jerusalem. He builds up fortresses and cities to defend his kingdom. We're told in verse 19, he built whatever he desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and throughout all the territory he ruled. He also demonstrated human resources expertise. He needed lots of labor for all his projects, so he took all his conquered people as slave labor, which was probably a, a little bit better for them than the death that they might have expected 
given Pharaoh's example at Geza in verse 16, when he put to death all the Canaanites living there. The Israelites served as managers, captains, and officials. And so Solomon artfully kept the peace as he accomplished these huge projects. He was a devout and pious leader. Three times a year, verse 25, he led the people in worship. Then verses 26 to 28, Solomon was an adventurous importer of foreign goods. He sent his navy to far-off lands to bring home riches, precious commodities. Solomon provided the ships, Hiram provided the Phoenician sailors and the know-how, and they both end up with heaps and heaps and heaps of gold. This truly is the golden age. But you can't help but wonder, because of the choice God gave him earlier, you can't help but wonder if this kingdom he is building will last. There's that thunder rolling again. However splendorous Solomon's achievements are, his choice is far more important. Think for a moment about the first generations of people who would read this book. They were God's people in exile in Babylon. They were people who'd been torn from their land. They had seen that grand temple ground down to rubble by the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. Solomon's splendor, well, it would have cut no ice with the displaced people of Israel. They knew it was both temporal and temporary. Jerusalem had been destroyed. The temple turned to dust. The people had become that very warning that parents would use to scare their children into obedience. No, it is Solomon's faltering faithfulness. That's what would have surely seized their attention. We read in chapter 11, verse 4, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. Remember God's warning? So the consequence of this diluted devotion, this decision to choose the world over God, the Lord becomes angry with Solomon and the rumbling thunderclouds of his vengeance would soon burst into storms that would destroy everything Solomon had created. But what relevance does all this have for us today? Well, I'm going to focus on three points of application. The first of which, and very briefly, is... Beware of idols. Solomon ultimately does not choose well this time. Through seeking his own fame and fortune, his own pleasures, he abandons his God and brings all of God's warnings down upon the heads of him and his people. Solomon serves as a warning that success in the world is no guarantee that we're right with God. 
We may be successful in the world's eyes, we may not, but neither state means we can't serve God. But we should not make success our idol. The stuff that really counts in our lives. It's not the size of our bank balance or the meteoric rise up the career ladder, not our great sporting achievements. What really counts is the spiritual choice we make in our hearts. For God or for something else? In other words, against him. Our lives can be pleasing to God without being a glittering success in the eyes of the world. Do you ever feel discouraged because you don't think there's anything noteworthy about your life? If you're in school, maybe you don't get straight A's. Perhaps you don't have a huge circle of friends. Maybe your wardrobe isn't as attractive, as um, fashionable as those around you. The world will tell you that must mean your life doesn't amount to very much. But not in God's eyes. Listen to Jesus. Set your heart on him. Beware of idols that lead you away as they take a grip on your life. Secondly, beware of idling. Faithfulness to Jesus is a daily choice. His work in us, through us, is a divine task for us. And it's never over. Solomon had finished. 20 years he'd done it. But God had other ideas. You never become idle. You never retire from service. Why? Because it's not about works. Our hearts will be motivated by grace to keep on loving and serving. That's why Paul writes about being a slave to Christ. We don't take time off. As Christians following Jesus, we don't live on yesterday's grace or yesterday's faithfulness. Just as God's mercy, they're new each morning. Our choice to follow Jesus must also be renewed. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus tells us as much. He said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Now look, we know it's true. When you first believe in Jesus, on that day you are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And yes, it's true, you choose him once and your eternity with him is secure. It's true, he has chosen you from before the foundations of the earth and he does not lose a single one of his sheep. But it's also true. Christians choose Jesus again and again and again. We choose Jesus over all the things the world offers to us and on all the situations the world throws at us. Solomon had a great track record of 20 years. But God said, what will you do for me now? 
And that's a message for us right here and now. Don't be idle. Don't fall back. Keep up your guard. Will you choose Jesus tomorrow morning and every morning that follows after? Will you choose Jesus next time you're tempted by the lures of this world? When you're tempted to gossip, when you're tempted to lie, the next time you meet disappointment or the next time you're delighted in those 35,000 decisions every day. Each one of them points to the big choice. Either you choose Jesus or you choose the world. It's never over. And there's a warning for our church body here. The Lord in his love sends it to us this morning. By his grace and mercy throughout the past year, our stock as a church has maybe risen in this village, albeit ever so little. But it's well known. Reputations are slowly built, but quickly destroyed, like Jerusalem. The church is never far from ridicule and scorn. There can be no retirement for us, ever. As we consider our vision to become a church of a hundred disciples, if we ever reach that position through our Lord's grace, we can't sit back and consider our worth. We can't get spiritual credit from our numbers online this morning or our giving or the faithfulness of our prayer life or Bible reading. However impressive our track record, God still says, fine, but what are you going to do for me now? Trusting in what we did yesterday is trusting in works. We cannot be idle. So beware of idols. Beware of idling. And lastly, beware of idealism. Idealism is defined by the Oxford Dictionary as the unrealistic pursuit of perfection. We know we can never achieve perfection in God's eyes, and so we need to be careful of making that our idol. Remember the children's story this morning? Maybe some of us, sometimes in our Christian lives, we're tempted to think we need to be the celebrated star soloist, leading the choir to be pleasing to God. When in fact, most of the time, Christianity is more like being a humble, hum, excuse me, harmonizing, reliable bass, or steady, dependable alto hidden in the back rows. It's no less worthy. In fact, the Christian life is very rarely about being an upfront star player. It's more about day by day, steady, steadfast, sturdy steps following Jesus. In John's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus tells us, I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Jesus wants us to be fruit that will last. He knows we can't be perfect, but he has entrusted us to lead the sort of Christian life that lasts the test of time, the steady, sturdy obedience 
that sticks with Jesus no matter what. If you live your life for Jesus, even an apparently unremarkable life, a life faithful to him is a life that's worth living, a life that God is pleased with. And even if the world does not recognize it, in heaven, it's a life greatly esteemed. When you look for people to emulate in your life, find someone you know who's been a Christian for a long time, someone who, even if their life might seem unremarkable, has led a faithful life in Jesus. Find someone you know who has walked with Jesus for a long time and model your life on theirs. And for those of us older, greyer, there's a responsibility here, isn't there? Could young people look at us and see that steadfast, sturdy faithfulness? Could they look at us across the rows of seats week after week in church and see us singing our hearts out, eyes shining with joy for the Lord, even if we are a bit off the tune? You know, the vestry behind me is lined with the photographs of ministers who came before Peter. We sometimes refer to them as the saints. You won't find any of them in Wikipedia. None of them made the cover of any popular magazine. Not one of them was perfect. But they live lives of steadfast service across many years. Saints without whom we might not be gathered, albeit virtually this morning, today. That long, steady obedience is what the Christian life should look like. We, we can't be perfect, but we can be faithful and allow our hearts to be made glad by our loving King Jesus, to feel and express the joy that comes with our decision to choose him above all things. You see, for Solomon, all his fame and fortune would fade. But in fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah, a better king than Solomon came along, another son of David named Jesus Christ, a perfect king. He came with all the renown and fortune of heaven, but he left it behind to come and rescue us, his people, from our plight. Jesus deserved all the things that were already in this world. At one point, he was even offered an easy road to the riches and rulership over it by the devil. Yet he refused because he must obey his father who sent him to this world to go to the cross. He again and again chose obedience and faithfulness to his father over the flash-in-the-pan sort of success that the world values. Instead of luxury, Jesus experienced agony. Instead of honor, he was humiliated. Instead of a long life, he had an early death. But through those things, he secured eternal prosperity and fruitfulness for his people. Eternal joy and gladness. King Jesus now sits on an eternal throne that will never fade.
He rules over an eternal kingdom filled with citizens who will sit under his rulership forever. The good news is that our citizenship in that kingdom is not based on our ability to obey well enough, on perfect obedience. It's based on his ability to keep us faithful to the end. As a child, do you remember singing at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow? There's a verse in it, in your hearts enthrone him. There let him subdue all that is not holy, all that is not true. Crown him as your captain in temptation's hour. Let his will enfold you with its light and power. It's through the power of Jesus we remain in the light. Not the world's fleeting flash and sparkle, but the all-pervading, all-enduring light and power of Jesus. Don't think that fame and fortune and all the things that glitter in this world will somehow satisfy you, bring you ultimate joy, or make you right with God. Instead, seek and be content with steadfast, sturdy faithfulness to Jesus. That's a life that you won't be disappointed in. That's a life filled with joy. That's a building that will last. I suspect there'll be someone here this morning who's not a Christian. It may be you've never chosen Jesus, that you've never decided to live not for yourself and for this world, but for something greater that you've never decided to be right with God and to inherit eternal salvation through Jesus Christ. If that's the case, know that today you can choose Jesus. Jesus provides all you need to be right with God as a gift. You don't deserve it, but he offers it unreservedly. He gave his life on a cross, willingly being murdered so that he could bear the penalty that you and I deserved. By him doing that, he makes possible the forgiveness of your sins so that if you put your trust in him, God will wipe away every sin you've ever committed. It's also true, if you take the road offered to you, the road that leads to him, there will be many challenges. Jesus says it will be a life of dying to your old self, dying to your old self-sufficiency, dying to your pride. But along the way, as you die to yourself, you will find more joy, more peace, more satisfaction than you could ever find in this world. So let me encourage you, if you have not put your trust in Jesus, today you can make that choice. Perhaps talk to Peter about it. It's not difficult. The very fact that you're listening means you already have the ticket. And Jesus paid for it. You have the choice. Will you choose to get on board and begin the most rewarding, exciting journey of your life? I pray so. Amen. Thanks again for listening. Please feel free to share this podcast. And if you'd like to be up to date with each week's talk, 
why not search Burkhead Free Church on your favorite podcast app and hit the subscribe button. For more information, go to burkheadfreechurch.org.